Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for April 9th, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we are here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. So seeing that this is technically the first version of this podcast, I think it makes sense to do a little background information. Um, first, I wanted to say what Niche is and a little bit about who we are and the intent of the podcast. Uh, Niche is sort of a virtual design app development agency uh, sort of sprung out of the last 18 months or so. I've been doing strategic consulting and a lot of talking about the mobile web and mobile in general. And uh, it got to the point where I wasn't building anything and I thought, man, I, you know, I I feel like the advice I'm giving people is on the money. It was It was definitely on the money and 2010, but you know, maybe everything has changed out from underneath me. So I felt like in order to keep my business, you know, my sort of main business vital and accurate and good that I just had to roll up the sleeves and, uh, and get into some real development, get back into real development. So that was sort of where niche came from. And, and, you know, Kelly and I, how long have we been working together? Um, since August or October of last year, I believe, or no, the year before last. Yeah, it's it's been over a year. So we've been doing a bunch of, I don't know, a, a lot of API work and uh, a lot of sort of internal projects, and I mean everything's been kind of geared toward like an educational type way, right? Right, right. There's pretty much every project. I think we've tried something new or you know done done some kind of experimentation. Mm-hmm. Yep, and there's been some stuff just for, uh, I don't want to say proof of concept, but but things that, you know, there was no client other than us. And th- and then some stuff for, for actual client work. But primarily Niche is set up to be the umbrella name over the things that are internal projects. So the guy, the, and, you know, and for things like the podcast, so we can have a kind of entity to refer to. And it's not just... The Jonathan and Kelly show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That has a nice ring to it. Yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> so I, I think if I was going to sum it up in a nutshell, I would say that um, that niche kind of exists to to prove the emerging best practices or test emerging, emerging best practices in mobile and the mobile web space where you get a lot of concepts like uh, responsive de- design, responsive web design, and adaptive images, and fluid grids, and uh, mobile first, and all of these sort of future-friendly concepts that sound great on the surface, and you just, you, I just always wonder, you know, but will that really work? You know, if I go to do a project like that, is it practical? Uh, so I guess we're, you know, Niches set out to test those by building real apps with real users and see how it goes, you know, and talk about it and blog about it and that sort of thing. So the beginning I said niche is about making apps that run everywhere and that's what this podcast is about. And the the I just want to say a few words about why I think that's important, why that's a good thing. And basically it's because that, you know, this the quote unquote coming zombie apocalypse apocalypse of devices, which is kind of already upon us um, is, as far as I can see, is just going to continue to get worse as the Internet of Things starts to really take hold and we have devices talking to each other on our behalf. There's going to be 
just untold number of devices to develop for everything from, you know, smartphones, of course, uh, we'll still have desktop computers, laptop computers, but it'll be smart appliances and children's toys and, and sport apparel. All of these things are going to communicate with each other and we need to have a way to program for them that, um, that will work in situations where there isn't even a user interface or, um, uh, or there's a, a very bare bones runtime environment <clears throat> that maybe can handle, you know, network communications over TCP IP and, and maybe some uh, like HTML rendering environment, but some very lightweight, I'm just imagining, I, I personally think there's going to be tons and tons and tons of places where a very lightweight runtime or, or no runtime is going to exist. And we need to be able to program in a way that, um, will make all these things communicate. So the concept of developing for like a particular phone, I think is uninteresting, I guess would be the best way to put it. I just, it, I think it's cool that people develop native iOS apps or, or games for PS3. I think that's really cool. It's hard and it takes a lot of talent to do it. It just bores me. I want, I want to be in the space where we're developing for huge numbers of people and connecting a global audience, not just, you know, 5% fraction of that audience. All right. So I didn't, I just wanted to give that little bit of background since this is the first podcast, um, I'm probably already belaboring the point, but, uh, but I think it's important background. So let's move on to something specific. I think every week we'll probably end up talking about an, a specific app that we worked on the previous week or something that's, that's, or recently or something that's on our minds from a pragmatic standpoint and just kind of explore the surprises and the challenges as we try and apply sort of best concepts to the development. I think most recently we've spent a most amount of time on Avalio, which is my humble opinion, um, <laughs> the <agree>. best, <laughs> yeah, the best mobile domain search that we could find on the internet. I mean, there's some really good, uh, desktop oriented, domain search tools like Domainer and there were a couple of others we looked at. So we wanted to make something that would be awesome on a mobile phone. Cause that's, I mean, that's what I'm always on. And that's where I, when inspiration strikes and I want to search for a domain name, that's where I am. I'm on my mobile. So the, there were some design goals before we started building Avalio, um, which I guess in order of importance were that the results were accurate. Uh, we didn't want false positives. Uh, at all because that's so annoying when you like search for a cool name and like oh it's available and then you go to you know your your GoDaddy or whoever you buy your domain names through and turns out it's not actually available it's so frustrating uh, so that was one thing we also wanted it to be extremely fast but not at the expense of accuracy so it needed to be super super responsive and uh, what else did we those are the two big ones yeah that and you know that and just the the mobile friendly Right, yeah, that it would be that would be great on mobile, but it also runs in any other desktop browser. Right, I think it's. I think he's also should probably maybe mention that you know you're talking about not wanting to design for one specific device. You know, we did have mobile in mind when we did this, certainly, but you know, there's actually there's also a you know an API for Valio that can be accessed you know, over anything. Right, yeah, that's a great point. It's it's kind of underlies everything that that happens at Niche, which is that it's got a by default, it's got to run everywhere. So yeah, the, so the step one really was to set up the API, right? Right, right. The Avalio web client actually runs on top of the API. So. 
Yeah, so totally eating our own dog food with the web client. So so just to paint a picture if uh, you haven't seen it, it's a very bare bones, minimal interface, sort of Google-ish, you know, uh, white background, black text, that sort of thing. And uh, it it's, we basically used responsive web design, although it doesn't scale up to anything extremely interesting on a larger browser, like say a desktop browser. But the concept was, you know, set up this front end, have it talk to an API that could be just as easily used by anyone else. And I think, I don't know if it's open or yeah. not. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, it's, it's open. We just haven't you know, written about it anywhere. So, you know, good luck finding it. <laughs> yeah. But that's the concept. So to, to us, really the real app is the API. And the client that we wrote is just one possible client and, and you know, meets the design goals that we had for this particular project. So there were a couple of interesting things that came up um, while we were working through it. And I guess the first one, the first one that I, I want to mention is that it, I thought this app would be like literally four hours, like four, maybe one day to develop. And I, I mean, how long did it actually take to get to the point where we are? Like, I don't know. Um, well, the the initial, getting the initial initial functionality did take about four hours, but then, you know, we, we tweaked, it seemed like forever. Yeah, it's amazing how the details matter so much. Yeah. So, yeah, especially when you're on mobile and the, you know, keyboard is just so, the typing even on the best smartphones is still jank it's awful so uh, let's talk about a couple of the things that we did when we were tweaking the mobile the actual interface first one I think is probably the the coolest in that it's so easy and that so many web developers could implement this right now which is putting attributes on the input right you know it's it's um this was actually something I wasn't aware of before I started working on Avalio with you because, you know, I don't have an extensive background in mobile. This is kind of kind of my first foray into it. And just just adding, you know, the the autocomplete, autocapitalize, and autocorrect attributes, you know, whether you want those on or off, you know, to the input field, you know, it, it, it really makes a huge difference on mobile and actually on the desktop too because, you know, you don't get the annoying, you know, autocomplete drop-downs or what have you. Right, and now even Safari on the desktop is doing that sort of damn you autocorrect type stuff. Right, I believe Firefox does too. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's clearly a trend, and it, it's useful to have that sort of thing in some fields, of course, but things like a username, or in this case, a, a domain name, which almost certainly is not going to be straight dictionary words. Mm-hmm. You know, you you don't want it to capitalize. You don't want it to autocorrect. It doesn't make sense for the field. So I think, in, as a general rule of thumb for developers working on the web, anyway, uh, you should consciously think about every field and whether or not those attributes should be on or off, because it makes a big difference for the end user. Another big one was touch events. Did you? This was your first time working with touch events, too, right? Right. It's what kind of what surprised me most about touch events. Well, a couple of things. Um, you know, first of all, when you bind to a touch event instead of a click, you know, you your app becomes just so much more responsive. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, translating a click to a or a touch to a click, I believe it's what something like a three hundred millisecond delay. Right. You yep. know, which which sounds tiny until you see it and you start, you know, touch, touch, touch. You know, those those three hundred milliseconds add up. Yep. And it's just it's so much more responsive binding directly to the touch. Yeah, absolutely. 
And the the other thing that surprised me is, despite despite the mobile growth, now now we weren't using a mobile framework on this because you know the the footprint was so tiny and the app was was so simple you know, that we we didn't really feel it needed one. But this you know it was also kind of a surprise to me that there really wasn't a better way in JavaScript of handling with the of, of handling the touch events. It was still kind of you know, there were there were a lot of things you had to account for as far as accidental touches and, and slight movements and what have you. Right. Yeah, a classic one is like the touch events are so fast that they're almost too fast mm-hmm. in certain cases. So there's a couple of places where, you know, if you do a search, uh, you end up with a long list of results and they're built in a, on a phone, it creates a scrolling situation. So if you if you have like, uh, you know, highlights on your list items, to indicate uh, tap, you know, so somebody taps on an item and it highlights, it's like a normal uh, expected behavior. But if you're, if the person is flicking up or down to scroll, that highlight is a little bit, uh, it puts a question mark in the user's mind, or at least in my mind, when I, I flick up and down in one of the rose highlights, I'm like, oh no, I accidentally clicked on that. You know, so you, you don't want the highlight to be instantaneous so you kind of have to build in a delay or uh, listen to touch end and decide whether or not the fingers slid around at all or if it generally stayed in the same place. Yeah, so there's not, I mean, basically, to, I guess to sum that up, there's no tap event in JavaScript. You know, it's like touch, you have to start with touch start and then check and see how much uh, distance is covered during a touch move. And then at the end, the touch end, check and see if the finger, you know, what you think they were intending to do? Were they trying to scroll or were they trying to tap on something? Right. It was kind of it was kind of surprising to me that there was there was just no you know there was no just tap. Right. <laughs> yep. It's very it's very you kind of have to build that stuff up from scratch for most apps. There's there are some libraries that are are have popped up to handle this, and you can you know like JQ Touch has a has a a tap event, but it's just too for what we needed. It just didn't. You know, we just, it was easier to just roll your own. So I think if, if people are interested in how we pull that off, you could just view source, of course, at uh, Avalio. Uh, what, it's A-V-A-I-L dot I-O. Right. If people want to check out the source code. Did we put that on GitHub yet? I don't think we did. I don't think we did, no. Yeah, I mean, you can just view source. It's pretty pretty straightforward. So another interesting HTML5 feature of Avalio is uh, local storage. And we used local storage for two reasons, uh, one to to create a feeling of responsiveness, and another, and the other is to uh, add some offline support. And that was those is your first local storage as well. Uh, yeah, actually it was. But um, unlike the touch events, I found the found the local storage just to be very easy to very easy to work with. Yeah, it's super straightforward. Yeah, easier than cookies. Easier. It's it it's basically JavaScript variables. That's how it feels to me. Right. You know, it's just a just just JSON data. Can you talk about how the the local storage works to to make the app feel faster? Sure. Um, what we do is whenever you do a search for a domain, uh, you know, on on Avalio you can either search you can search for a specific domain name or you can put in a domain you know without the TLD on the end and it will search oh, 26 or 27 different different um, um, TLDs. Mm-hmm. 
And what we do is whenever you get a result back, if it's a, it's if it's a successful result and that you know you don't we you know, we don't get some kind of error along the way in communication or what have you, um, you know then it will cache that result, you know to local storage and you know the cache expires after a while of course so your so your searches remain relevant, but it, it caches you know the individual record for each each domain name that comes back, and that way it allows you then we keep a history of your searches. You know that goes into local store, and then we also let you store you know domains that you're interested in. So you just you know you just create a list of list of domain names. You know, say I go to go to the go and I search for avail. Mm -hmm. You know, search for avail and comes up avail io is available, avail at. You know, all those whatever you can you can store. Say oh, I like avail. You know, you can you can add a star to it and it it puts it in your favorite list. So you don't have to go back and repeat you know, the the individual search or the research search on the whole. On the whole list of TLDs. Right. Yeah, I like that a lot. It's, it allows you to do multiple searches, star them, uh, keep them in your, your sort of like favorites, so you can. Uh, that's that's usually when I'm searching for domains. I, I assume a lot of people do the same thing. You're not going to get the one you want. Yeah. So you kind of have to poke around and and compare, like, oh, this one maybe is better, but this one is shorter. Uh, but I like the way this one sounds, you know, so y you end up doing a bunch of different searches and saving them, and then you can keep them in a list and just like, oh, you know, I think I like, you know, you can, you can sort of pick through. It's almost like the, the Google font compare when, you're, when right. you've gone through Google fonts and you compared a bunch of things and you can go into this kind of like light box of fonts and compare them next to each other and then throw away the ones that uh, you don't think are good candidates after all. Yeah, I, I use it all the time. Yeah, I'm afraid I do too. <laughs> Uh, so, so in addition to saving the network requests, you know, so the, if you're repeating a search, you don't have to go over the network again. You don't have right, to wait for the, right. the who instant. is, right. You don't have to wait for the who is databases to reprocess because on the server side, we're pinging who is databases to make sure we have the most accurate results. And it, you know, it takes a little bit of time. So if you're just researching for something you just searched for three minutes ago, you know, we're not going to make you go through all that waiting again. But it also gives you, um, by sort of for free, you also get uh, a little bit of offline support. So probably sounds kind of weird to imagine having a domain search tool that works offline. Um, but it can make sense if you are in that, you know, you want to, you're on a plane or whatever, you're in the subway and you want to go back and see maybe the things that you favorited um, or see what searches that you've done. You can actually do that because of local storage, but also... Uh, because we use app cache on the static static files so that um, they would be available to the mobile browsers without an internet connection. Uh, I mean, app cache is pretty straightforward. Is there anything about it that you thought was surprising or, or that sort of thing? Um, no, not really. Like you said, it's pretty straightforward. It's, you know, basically it's, you know, you create a text file that's a list of all of your static, static assets that you want to cache. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then you include that in the, in the head of your document you know, include a reference to that. And, you know, just, just local storage alone isn't enough. You know, your data is going to be stored on your device, but if you're not caching the assets, you know, there's, there's no way of getting to that data. Right. So you kind of need that. And I think the, I think the big thing about that is, you know, just, just remember to, to temporarily remove the app cache when you're, when you're updating it and testing. Yeah. It makes things a lot easier. Yeah. I, I, it bites me every single time. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so you you update your CSS, you update your JavaScript, and then you reload your browsers, and the 
the changes aren't sticking. You can't figure out what's going on. And 15 minutes later, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm using AppCache. <laughs> so a couple of things about AppCache for people that haven't haven't seen it. Um, when, what happens on the iPhone, at least, uh, when you visit a site that has AppCache, it, it does store all of the static assets indicated by the developer on the device. And then if you go into airplane mode or you you're just don't have a connection, if you open up your browser and go to that link again, uh, you'll get that familiar dialog box that says, uh, you know, you have to disable airplane mode or whatever, and with the settings button and an OK button. And if you just hit OK, uh, normally, on a normal website, the page will just go white and not load. But if the site's been uh, uh, app cached, I guess is the term, then it, you can hit OK and the, the page will just stay there. It will continue to work. So you still you get this kind of like warning dialog, but the page will still work. So it's it's pretty cool in a lot of situations. Um, this one is Avalia is probably a little bit of a stretch, um, but I do I do like it that it works offline. I have been psyched that it works offline on a, on a couple of rare occasions. But if you're working on something that's like um, you know. Uh, I don't know, like like Instapaper or Read It Later or, uh, you know, the Boston Globe site, bostonglobe.com has some offline support, which makes a lot of sense for people who, you know, don't have time to read something at a particular moment, but they want to read it on the subway and the subway, the connection is going to be really spotty. Uh, it's It gives you all the tools you need to set something up like that in a web browser without any native code. And I I mean, I think we just have to start getting used to this. As much as I'd like to say, the uh, you know, the problem with uh, offline is that you should be online. You know, I think the solution is to get online, not to write a bunch of code. Uh, but that's that's that ubiquitous broadband uh, wireless is not uh, not coming as fast as anybody likes. It's pretty good, but there are still times when you're offline. Yeah, and there there are large chunks of the world that don't have internet connectivity nearly as often as as we do. So yeah, that brings up another point. And not to go off on a, on offline support like crazy, but I think it's really interesting. Uh, the other big thing is that data is not free. So if if you are uh, and in some places it's a lot worse than it is here. Um, so you know not so caching assets on the client side can make financial sense even. Uh, for a user who's got a cap plan and is worrying about that kind of thing. Uh, the flip side of that is that that if your application is cached and you know users are using it, they're not hitting your server. So it can have an impact on your analytics and your server traffic, uh, I suppose in good and bad ways. I mean, your server traffic is going to go down, uh, but your analytics might also go down. So you're not getting a clear picture of um, exactly how many people are using your application. So that's something that you, you know, it's just a balance that you have to strike how much, because I think mobile analytics are super important. Uh, so you just have to strike a balance between those two things, depending on, you know, the, the type of app that you're building. And who you're building it for. Yeah, exactly. So then the last thing, this was, this is something I think I want to talk about more. I think we'll talk about this. Well, probably all these topics we'll talk about a lot, but this one is um, this one I like that it sort of takes the blinders off for people who just think about uh, iPhones, for example, or just like brand new Android phones. That when uh, when Avalio was 
in the testing phase, I tried it on everything that I could get my hands on. So obviously, laptops and desktops, um, uh, Mac, PC, uh, all the different browsers on Macs and PCs. Uh, I don't I th think I did IE6. I'm not sure if I could get that machine booted up or not. <laughs> But I, I tested on a ton of desktop browsers, and I tested on, you know, a bunch of different phones, uh, Android, iOS, uh, WebOS, Windows Phone, um, what else? A bunch of stuff. Uh, and also on Google TV and um, on a Mac Mini connected to uh, a television that I was controlling with a sort of non-standard computer remote. And one thing became immediately apparent on uh, both the Google TV and my Nexus One phone because both controllers have a trackball. And typically when people think about uh, designing for touch devices, they think there's no hover, there's no mouse pointer, there's no focus, there's no sort of, sort of temporary focus. But if there, is a, if, if there is trackball input, which does you know, still exist and I think will continue to exist because of internet connected TVs, uh, you do want to handle for that case. So for example, on the Google TV, um, like I said, the remote has sort of, it's a, a D-pad actually, it's not a trackball. And typing and getting around the interface is uh, an extreme example of Fitz Law you know, moving the mouse cursor from one end to the other, it's a pain in the butt. And tabbing is a lot easier. We're using the D-pad to hop from tab to tab and then into the search field and then to the uh, results and being able to tab through the results. It's way better experience uh, on the TV. Um, I am actually a big fan of uh, the trackball on the Nexus One because you can operate it without blocking the content. So you can scroll through real quickly um, real quickly with that on the phone. So the point being that um, we didn't have it set up initially so that you could see what item had focus. So we just added a, a couple lines of CSS um, with the, a focus pseudo selector so that as the, as the user is moving their um, mouse pointer, air quotes, around the interface, they could see what it was that was highlighted. So if they hit the enter key at any given point, they'd know what they were what they were going to be pressing, essentially. And uh, it's easy to overlook uh, tab order. And in fact, we did reorder the tabs. Didn't, well, tabs. We reordered the HTML source. Right. Yeah, so that, so that um, the, well, what was it? We had, we had the, the interface set up, I think, in one way initially, and then we used like a float to visually change the order but we didn't change the HTML source order. Uh, yeah, I believe so. It's it's been so long ago. I don't don't entirely remember now. And, and by long ago, I mean maybe a week. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we're like three. But, apps um, yeah, it's um, you know, we have with Avalia too. You know, we ended up we have a lot of a lot of hidden elements and a couple of AJAX components and what have you. So, mm. you know, when you're when you're sorting out, you know, the HTML source order and what have you, there were those 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 dynamic and hidden elements to you know, to consider as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we had a little CS, CSS to make it obvious what you were on, and then we reordered the HTML source so that the 
uh, elements were, the visible elements were actually in the order that you could see them in, uh, so that it made, it was a little more predictable as you were tabbing through items where the cursor was going to go next. And I think that made a big difference, and it speaks to, actually speaks to um, Luke Robluski's he does a talk about mobile first and and web responsive web design where he you know this sort of this when you're building a web app there's this tension between do we want one site designed with responsive web design that you know at this at a given URL uh, both on the desktop and the mobile browser you'll see the same content and that's a great way to go if you can do it because then you don't have to build two different websites for you know two different devices um, but he built an app called bag check and he and his developer I don't remember the developers name but the two of those guys decided to have a different URL structure for the mobile app and also different HTML source order for the mobile app and source order of the HTML is not something you can change with CSS and you can, uh, we should put up uh, a bunch of links at the end of this. When we post this, we'll put up links, including a, a link to Luke's post about why they didn't use responsive web design for bag check. Uh, and it, it boiled down to really two things. One was that they wanted to have different HTML in the two different experiences, and they also wanted to have different URL structure for the two different experiences. So they had to go with two different code bases for the front end. And I think, I think another important thing to mention is, you know, when you start talking about tab order and the visual cues and what have you, you know, just in terms of making your making your site a lot more accessible for people who are maybe, you know, maybe have visual pro vision problems or accessing, you know, you know, interacting, interfacing with the computer, you know, through some other device, you know, like maybe, you know, maybe a wand or you know, voice or, or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it can it can really be really be a big help there. And actually I think a lot of people a lot of people probably don't think of it because even 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 I didn't think of it and you know, a few months ago I was I was in that situation where I was having a, a very hard time seeing to do anything and, and even still I didn't you know, 'cause it's just it's just not something we're used to doing, I don't think. Right. Yeah, it's a great point. I do it too. I mean, I'm standing at a desk that has at least 40 screens on it, at least. And and still, I'll develop on either usually an Android phone or, or an iOS phone, because those are usually the closest to me, the ones that are charged all the time. And, you know, I won't test Windows Phone initially. I won't. I'll forget to do WebOS. I'll forget to do BlackBerry. And, you know, you got to you got to do it. And that includes, so it's not just platforms, it's also devices, it's also screen readers, it's also trackballs, it's also D-pads, you know, and you can't really, it's probably unrealistic to imagine testing every possible configuration, but you can do a pretty good, I think you can take it, in most cases you can be like, well, this app does this, and I expect it to have this kind of audience, and those kind of people are probably going to have this or that. It makes some just smart judgments about um, popularity of devices and what you want to support and how much effort you want to put into that. Um, so, but I think in general, if you if you start off with clean content, you have an API in the back end to support stuff you didn't think of or to let people build their own apps to support their own use cases. 
and you, you've got your HTML written semantically and uh, in a way that would make sense maybe without CSS, maybe without JavaScript, depending on how far you want to take it and what your app or site does. If you code to those standards, then I think you'll be pleasantly surprised when you do get your hands on a, you know, Google, Sony Google TV with a D-pad on it. You're like, damn, my site totally rocks on this TV. Yeah, yeah I, I laughed so hard when you came back and said, we need to adjust the tab order so it works on my TV. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. The, the other thing about TVs is that um, e even though, you know, I think it's like a 30-inch screen or something. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a good-sized screen. You know, it's a TV. Uh, but still, you're like 10 or 12 feet away from the thing. So in all reality, it's really kind of like the same size as a phone because you're not as close to it as you are to a computer screen that might be a similar size. So it, it's interesting. Uh, it, you need to be like way zoomed in to be able to read it from that far away. We actually would probably do a whole podcast on TV. So yeah, that, that. that interests me. I hadn't thought about the TV like that because I, I don't get anywhere near that far from my TV. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, so but the point is, if you code to standards, uh, you'll be pleasantly surprised when you do see your site in unexpected circumstances. All right, everybody. So that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Schaefer. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.